All right, this evening we continue on in our study in the book of Psalms together. If you want to turn with me to Psalm 55, where we pick back up in our study through the book of Psalms together, we'll see if we can take in perhaps a few more Psalms this evening as we continue to survey through the book of Psalms together. Psalm 55 uh, tells us that it is a contemplation, again, of David. And we cannot be absolutely certain, but as we look at the psalm, it seems very likely that the context or the possible setting of this psalm could find its place in Second Samuel chapters 15 through 18, uh, where there we see David going through a very a painful betrayal in his own personal life. Uh, it's during that time that, remember, David's son Absalom uh, rebels against his father who was on the throne at that time, and he seeks, it says, to steal away the hearts of the people and to push his father off of the throne and to try and take over uh, the leadership of Israel at that time. And so there's this very bitter and painful rift uh, that happens between David and one of his close family members. His own son, in a very hateful and spiteful manner, seeks to push his father off of the throne and to usurp the role of king there in the land of Israel. And then on top of that, to add sort of uh, insult to injury, we know it's during that time as well that a man named Ahithophel, who was one of David's very close friends, and it seems one of his most trusted advisors or counselors in David's life, chooses to side with Absalom during the time of that rebellion as well, betraying David and sort of creating another painful betrayal in his heart, not only the betrayal of a close family member, but also the abandonment of someone who was a close friend and associate in his life. And it seems that it's out of that setting and that context uh, that David writes these things here. So David will be writing these things at a time later in his life. It seems reflecting upon that painful uh, period of betrayal that he went through as he expresses some of these things. Now, David does not mention Absalom nor Ahithophel in the psalm directly, uh, so we can't be dogmatic that these are the events that he's specifically referring to. Uh, Again, the Bible tells us love covers a multitude of sins, Uh, so perhaps it was the graciousness of David under the inspiration of the Spirit that he opted not to put their names in as he was referring to these things that he's describing here. Uh, It also could be as well, uh, if you've journeyed for a little bit of time in life, you start to realize that part of the experience of life, as well as many other difficulties and challenges you go through, uh, is there won't only be one occasion where somebody wounds you. There won't only be one occasion when someone betrays you. Uh, or does you wrong, or abandons you in a relationship. Unfortunately, that is just part of the process. It's a part of many of the difficulties and hardships we go through in this journey on earth. And so it could be that David's writing these things maybe of completely different events uh, that happened at another point in time in his life. Either way, it seems the, the pain of the experience and him trying to process it mentally and emotionally is kind of the undercurrent of the things that he's writing here. So look at these begins here in Psalm 55. He begins the Psalm by crying out to the Lord saying, give ear to my prayer. O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Attend to me. He says, and hear me. So David, in the midst of this painful betrayal that he's going through, Uh, No doubt, I think in some ways, if this was the time of Absalom, his son's rebellion against him and the hatred that he expresses towards him later on, uh, or Ahithophel turning against him, no doubt some of this, David is not only dealing with the pain of what's been done to him, but he's also probably dealing with some of the own pain and regret that he feels in his own heart, because we know that part of Absalom's rebellion and even Ahithophel turning against him was directly connected consequence-wise to the things that David himself had done with entering into an adulterous relationship with Bathsheba and then ultimately remember trying to cover that up and murdering uh, her husband Uriah. Uh, And as God sort of rebuked David for that through Nathan the prophet, God told David that part of the consequence that would fall to him is that he would deal with some of the 
sort of outflow of that pain and difficulty by experiencing uh, some of the same things being reaped in his own life, that the sword would never depart from his house, and so that there would be pain and consequences that would come into his family relationships, um, and that in some ways similar things that he had done would kind of come back upon his own head as part of the repercussion. And so no doubt as some of these things were happening, though they were not justified, they were painful, hurtful, and wrong, No doubt David in some ways is probably a little bit exasperated and frustrated with his own heart and life, realizing that some of these things were directly connected to some poor choices he had made at a prior time in his own life. Uh, And I think as David's no doubt processing that and maybe the guilt of that and some of the shame of that still, though he knows he's forgiven as the Lord uh, spoken to him. We just saw that great depth in Psalm 51. Uh, But as David's dealing with this abandonment and this hurt, It's almost as if I can sense David here in verses 1 and 2. It's almost as if he's reflecting upon the fact that he is so thankful that the Lord always gives ear to his prayer and that the Lord thankfully never abandons us, no matter how many wrong things we do and no matter how many times we turn away from him. Uh, And that we are just as guilty of betrayal as anyone else. And here, David, you kind of sense him crying out, Lord, give ear to my prayer. Don't hide your... Himself, he says, from my supplication, hear me and attend to me. In other words, Lord, others have hidden themselves from me. My own son has turned away from me. Lord, my own family member has bitterly betrayed me and wounded me, and that's hard to deal with. Lord, my, my closest friend, this person who I was in a deep relationship with, they've turned away from me. But Lord, please don't you turn away from me. And I'm so thankful, Lord, that, that you'll never leave me or forsake me. And it's almost as if you can sense as he cries out to the Lord, Lord, They may have turned from me, but don't hide yourself from me. Attend to me. Hear my prayer. Lord, I need your help in the midst of this. And then he starts to express some of his emotional struggle. And again, as we've talked about, the the range of emotions that we see in the Psalms, that's why we love them so much, because we realize how normal it is for us to go through all these different spectrums of emotions as we go through things in this life. Look what he says, verse two. He says, I am restless in my complaint. You ever had a restless night's sleep? You ever had a restless spirit because something has troubled you and you just feel all churned up and restless within as you're dealing with something that's hard in your life maybe that you're going through or someone has done to you and you're trying to process that maybe a family dysfunction or hurt or wounds and and it kind of causes you to struggle he says i'm restless in my complaint look what he says i moan so that's biblical if you moan i moan noisily because of the voice of my enemy again absalom was saying things about david that were not true his own son was tarnishing Uh, his father's reputation and saying hurtful things about him. He says, the the voice of my enemy because of the oppression of the wicked for they bring down trouble upon me. And David says, verse three, and in wrath, they hate me. Now those are strong words. David's saying these individuals who should have loved me and supported him, he says at this point in time, they actually hate him with wrath and intensity. I mean, talk about a a tremendous shift. I mean, your own family who should love you and be the most committed to you and supportive of you for them to actually be in a place where, as David describes here in verse 3, where they've become his enemy. They're oppressing him in wicked ways. They're bringing trouble into his life, and they actually hate him. Uh, That's a very hard thing, but yet we, to some degree, from time to time, may experience or have seen in our own life occasions where even those closest to us can turn completely around and go from one side of a relationship all the way over to where now they hate us. And they actually treat us like an enemy and do hurtful and cruel things in our life. And that's a very painful and difficult thing to process. And David here was dealing with that very thing. Remember, Jesus even told us in the New Testament, he said, don't be surprised if people hate you because of me. And sometimes the very reality of just your commitment to Christ and your desire to walk with Jesus may at times cause even some of your unsaved friends or even your unconverted family members to actually have a degree of animosity towards you and almost despise and hate you because they are bothered by the light that emanates from your life as you walk with Christ. 
And Jesus said, even sometimes our, our enemies can become those of our own household just simply because of your commitment to Christ. And David's dealing with the difficulty of that in his life. Look as he begins to express the hardship now. Verse four, look what he says. My heart is severely pained within me. And the terrors of death, he said, have fallen upon me. Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me and horror has overwhelmed me. Boy, David's incredibly expressive, isn't he? I mean, as he expresses the hardship that he's going through emotionally and relationally and, and mentally, the things that he's got going on in his head, David here is expressing the strong emotions that he's dealing with. And you can tell from what David is describing here, he's very wounded and he's very brokenhearted, right? And when people do us wrong or someone betrays us or something very hurtful happens, David says, my heart is severely pained. You know, he's got a broken heart. You know, and you may be here this evening and maybe someone in your family, maybe it's just was a spouse, maybe it's a, a, you know, a sibling, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your children, and maybe they've done something severely hurtful to you. And tonight you may be here as well and dealing with the, the severe pain within your heart because you're thinking of all people. How could my family do this to me? How could someone who's supposed to be my own family hurt me in such a deep way? And wound me so severely. And that's hard to process. It's hard to reconcile that mentally and to deal with it emotionally. I mean, you can perhaps relate completely to what David's saying here. My heart truly, it hurts more than a physical pain. You know, there's a pain that is not physical. There's a pain that's emotional and mental. And he says, my heart is severely pained within me. And so much to the point where he says, it, it literally causes me to feel like the terrors of death are falling upon me. It's almost as if David's saying, I just, I'm so hurt and confused and so bothered and upset by this. Literally, I just feel like he says, like death is just haunting me. David, why bother keep living? David, why bother carrying on? It's that bad. It's that horrible. And David, again, just as a man wrestling with these human realities and how our thoughts go to dark places, he says in verse five, fearfulness and trembling, literally trembling, so emotionally distraught that he's actually physically trembling. He says, fearfulness and trembling have come upon me. Horror has overwhelmed me. Almost sounds like David's dealing with some anxiety that he's dealing with panic issues and again struggling and and wrestling with all these kind of things which again just brings us back to the reality that part of the hurtful and difficult experiences we go through in this life means that from time to time we're going to struggle with things like anxiety or depression or heartbreak or difficulty and these aren't abnormal experiences unfortunately because of the result of sin being in the world among humanity from time to time these are part of the painful processes of just the journey of earth. And they're not something necessarily that means life is abnormal. In fact, quite honestly, many a times those painful experiences and the hardships that we go through, difficult as they are. And look, I, I don't sign up for them like college courses any more than you do. I'd much rather take the correspondence course than have to take the course myself of pain and hardship or betrayal or abandonment or whatever. But the reality is a lot of times those experiences become some of the most character developing things that we go through. You know, I look at some individuals that I know and particularly some younger individuals that I know that are very mature for their age or have a great depth of character. And some of those individuals went through really hard upbringings. And because of some of the harder things they went through, it actually shaped their character. It actually developed their character and gave them a degree of maturity. It gave them a greater recognition of their need for God in their life in a whole other way. And, and, and when we go through hard things, they can either make us bitter, right? Or they can make us better. And, and, and so oftentimes, you know, we think when pain happens or hardship, happens, oh, it shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be going on. But God can use the instrument of pain and hardship and even unpleasant experiences and hurtful things. And like Joseph, remember at the end of his life, Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, as he talks to his brothers, 
and they're trying to plea for mercy because they're so afraid that Joseph is just going to drop the hammer on them now that he's the prince of Egypt and they've recognized who he is. And remember, they did Joseph really wrong in the earlier years of his life. And, and they're now realizing, oh, my goodness, this man could literally put us to death. He's second in charge in Egypt now. And we are, in a sense, at a great vulnerable place before him. And Joseph says to them, listen, yes, what you did to me was wrong. But he says, what you intended for evil, God meant it for good. In other words, what you did was evil. He didn't diminish that. But he says, but God was able to use it for a good purpose in my life. And how wonderful God is that he's able to do that. And much of these things that David went through were character shaping things in his life. And they can often be in our lives as well, but they are real and painful experiences. But how do we process them? As I've said many times before, and particularly in our study in the book of Psalms, David didn't process them through looking to unhealthy and wrong coping mechanisms. Everybody needs a coping mechanism when they go through pain and hardship. The question becomes, what do you use as a coping mechanism? God's the right coping mechanism. Because the Bible says that the Lord can heal the brokenhearted. The Bible tells us that his presence and his power and his help is what we need, not necessarily turning to this or that substance or this chemical or these therapy classes, but we need to turn to the Lord to the very God who understands pain, to Jesus himself who experienced bitter betrayal and pain as well, who can aid us and assist us as we go through those very things. And David, so often as he goes through these hard times, he exp again, he's expressing this to the Lord. He's processing his pain through prayer. That's what we're reading here. He's praying it through and talking to God about it as a way of letting God, you might say, spiritually bring the therapeutic healing that he needs in his heart and in his soul as he's praying this through and just talking to God. And look what he says in verse six. And again, is this not so human? As he's gone through something hurtful, he's dealing with a stormy trial. Look at verse six with me. He says, so I said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I wish I was a bird so I could fly away. <laughs> I wish I could just fly away and escape. I would fly away and be at rest, he says, if I could just have wings like a bird, I could just get away from these people, away from this difficulty. I could elude this hardship, not have to deal with these individuals that brought difficulty or pain and figure out how do I process a relationship. He says, I would just run away. I just fly away and escape. I just go look for rest on some isolated island somewhere. Oh, that I had wings that I could just fly away and be at rest. He says, indeed, verse seven, I would wander far off and remain in the wilderness. Say lies says, or think upon that. And then he says, verse eight, I would notice hasten my escape from the windy storm and the tempest. Now, is that not a very human reaction to when we go through hardship, right? When we're going through a hard time, the main thing that comes to us right away is how do I, there's our key word there, verse eight, escape. How do I escape? This is hard. This is hurtful. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal with them. I just want to escape. I just wish I had wings like a bird. I would just fly away to some remote island and have some restful, peaceful time and just get away from this difficult person or I would just escape to this location so I could get out of this situation. And again, this is a very common human tendency is that like David here, and again, I appreciate the humanity that the Holy Spirit lets us see in David's life. The Bible does not paint this unrealistic picture of, of some of the beautiful spiritual heroes that we know in the word of God as if they're somehow you know, immune to hardships and pain, to just human experiences. David's reaction was, I just want to escape, man. I don't even want to deal with this. I don't want to deal with these people. I just want to get away from everything and run off. And a lot of times that's our reaction. That's our, our human tendency, but it's not the right reaction. God doesn't intend for us to escape hardship. God intends for us to learn how to endure, listen, and overcome hardship. The Bible says in Romans 8 that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. And so, yes, we're going to go through hardship and famine and difficulty. Romans 8 describes that. But it says, but yet in all these things, nothing separates from the love of Christ. And we are more than conquerors 
through him who loves us. So as we go through hard times, God doesn't want us to run off. God doesn't want us to run away from our problems. God wants to learn us to learn how to sink our roots into him, to let him help us, give us the grace, give us the strength, and that we would respond to our hard times and not just react in our hard times. Because to react is to run off. To react is to escape. To react is to behave in a way where we're, in a sense, getting in the flesh rather than responding in the spirit. God wants us to learn how to respond by his grace and through his power and wisdom. But how normal, David, he just like you and I, said, man, I just wish I could escape and get away from all this as he's dealing with it in his mind at this time. He then, verse 9, turns to the Lord as he continues to pray, and he says, letting out some of his, some of his heat and steam, you can tell, destroy, O Lord. Now, I don't know if that's a good New Testament prayer to pray. Jesus said we're to love our enemies, but David's angry. He's hurt, right? He's not kind of glossing up his prayer. Let me sound spiritual here. God knows his heart, right? But look what David prays. He says, destroy, O Lord, divide their tongues. And, and the idea there, uh, divide their tongues, is David's basically saying, Lord, disrupt their plans. Because the plot of Absalom and Ahithophel to overthrow the kingdom and going around and saying things to steal the hearts of the people in the kingdom. Remember, that's what Absalom was doing when you read the passages in second samuel absalom was saying things outside of the city gate oh if i were king i would do things this way if i was a leader instead of the way that he's leading i would handle affairs this way and again all the things they were saying were basically just trying to stir up havoc among the people and so david just prays lord divide their tongues the idea is lord just just ruin their plans in a sense, he's just saying, just deal with them, Lord. Disrupt all the, all the wrongdoing. Just deal with it and disrupt and foil all the wrong things that they're doing, he says. Just, just deal with them, God, he's saying. Destroy their wrong efforts. For I, he says, have seen violence and strife in the city. And these were the repercussions that were happening as the direct result of Absalom's rebellion. There was violence there was strife in relationships among the city. Day and night, he says, they go around on its walls. Iniquity and trouble are also in the midst of it. Destruction is in its midst, and oppression and deceit do not depart from its street. So David's just describing what he saw there as a true shepherd king as he looked upon the city of Jerusalem. And as this revolt was happening, which was stimulated by the pride of Absalom, it was the pride in Absalom's heart. David says the result of that pride and selfish ambition, these were the consequential outcomes, things like strife in the city. He says there's iniquity and trouble and destruction and oppression and deceit. See, these are the byproducts of pride. These are the byproducts of selfish ambition and arrogance. When people begin to behave in these ways, these are often the resulting things, that the city was a mess because of what Absalom was doing in his rebellion. Verse 12, he says, now indicating, as I said, that the closeness and how this hurt him, he says, verse 12, for it is not an enemy who reproaches me. Then I could bear it. So David says, man, if it was one of my enemies that did this to me, I would expect that, right? So David said, if this was just some guy in the kingdom who's always hated the fact that I've been a government official and he hates me being the king and he was doing these things or he was saying these things, David said, I could accept that. I could embrace it. That wouldn't really phase me that much because you're always going to have enemies. He says, if it was an enemy who was reproaching me and doing this, I could bear that a lot more easy. The hard thing, David says, verse 12, nor is it one who hates me that has exalted himself against me because then I could just hide from him. I could just detach myself from it. Verse 13, here's his problem. But it was you, a man, my equal, my companion. The idea is my close friend, my companion, my acquaintance, my close associate. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng or the crowd gathering together there. So David is just expressing how the thing that broke his heart so much and made this so difficult for him is the fact that it was someone who was close to him relationally. 
And I think we all can agree with that very reality that it makes it so much harder to swallow, does it not, when someone is close to you relationally and they betray you. When someone who is close to you in relationship hurts you or wounds you or abandons you, that closeness is what makes the, the pain that much more severe. And David says here, man, I, this, my own family members? My own family? How could this be? And David says, and, and Ahithophel, his friend, he says at one time, he says, you weren't only my companion, but he says, we used to have sweet times of counsel together. We used to go to the house of God together and worship. We used to serve the Lord together and talk about the things of God together. And he says, and, and, and you were my closest friend. You used to be my closest confidant. And yet being the one closest to me, you're the one that's betrayed me like this. You're the one that's wounded me like this. And that's a hard thing to process when someone close to us in relationship ends up being the very person who betrays us. And of course, ultimately, as we look at David dealing with this, uh, it becomes a prophetic picture of exactly what our Lord Jesus himself dealt with because Jesus experienced a very similar betrayal to what David describes here in Judas Iscariot, right? Because when you look at verses 12, 13, and 14, they describe specifically, prophetically, what Jesus himself in a body of flesh went with. Jesus, as you think of his relationship with Judas, Judas was one of the 12, one of his companions, one of his acquaintances. I mean, think how much Jesus afforded to Judas and blessed Judas with like all the other 12 disciples. He got to hear all the same sermons. He got to travel around and minister with Jesus. Jesus let him manage all the money. He let him manage all the books. Shows you how much God's concerned about all the money in the church, right? He let Judas manage the money. And he let Judas spend time with the 12. And no doubt all the things that Jesus said and the things that aren't even recorded, the times they talked about things and worshiped together and prayed together and all those things. And yet it was Judas, one close to Jesus, who turned the knife in his back and betrayed him in a very hurtful way. Look, the reason why that's so important is because when you and I go through these kind of things, and you may have, or you may possibly in the future, the wonderful thing is there is someone who understands and who can help. And it's not David. It's the son of David. It's Jesus. Because Jesus dealt with those very things, and there's no one better that you can go to in those times than to say, Jesus, I just experienced part of what Philippians 3 says, the fellowship of his sufferings. Jesus, you know what it feels like when someone does the Judas thing. And Lord, it's happened to me. A family member, a close relationship. Lord, help me. How do I deal with this? Lord, you went through this and you overcame the temptation and you didn't sin in it and you handled it in a godly way. So by the power of your spirit and grace, Jesus, heal me and help me to deal with this. And the Lord can. He fully understands and can sympathize with that experience of betrayal and hurt if you're going through it or have to kind of process it in a healthy and a godly way. David, verse 15, you can tell he's kind of going back and forth, just like you and I, he's human as emotions. Look what he says, verse 15. He says, let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell for wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. Now, I don't know. It is interesting that David uses this analogy to kind of vent some of his frustration. Let death seize them and let them go down alive into hell that is into Sheol, the place of the dead. Uh, as he thinks about the rebellion that's happening against him in Numbers chapter 16. Remember when the rebellion of Korah happened? And do you remember how God dealt with that? It says that God literally opened up the earth and let them be swallowed into the earth. So maybe David's just reflecting upon that. Lord, I know what you like to do with rebels. Can you do it again? Just, op just do the core thing, Lord. Just open the earth, swallow them, and then I won't have to fly away. <laughs> just get rid of them, Lord. But again, he's just airing his frustration here. But you notice that even as he's expressing these things, he's expressing them where? In prayer. He's not saying to other people around him, you know what that they did to me and just, would you pray for them? That's not what David's doing. 
David's not telling other people about his anger and his frustration and his agita. And, and he's not telling other people. He's telling God. He's saying, God, I'm really angry. And Lord, I just pray that you would do something to him because God can take it and filter and say, okay, okay, David, I know you. Don't you do it. If I want to do it, I'll do that. But that's okay. You can talk to me about it, David. And that's what we should do. You know, even those times, and we feel some intense anger and hurt and frustration. That's okay. Vent to God. Just vent it to God. He's got big shoulders. He can process it. He can handle it. You can be honest and vulnerable with God. The Bible says, Psalm 139, before we even speak a word, before it even comes to our tongue, God already knows it. So you can't hide the way you feel from God anyway. He knows you're angry. He knows you're frustrated and hurt. Just vent your frustrations to him, and, and he'll answer that prayer accordingly. But just express it to him. David does here. Verse 16, he goes on to say, as for me, I will call upon God. And the Lord shall save me. So, Lord, despite what they're doing, I'm trusting that as I call upon you that you're going to save me and preserve me despite the hardship that they're bringing upon me. He says, verse 17, evening and morning and noon. So notice all throughout the day, in the morning, at noon, lunchtime, in the evening, David says, all throughout the day, I will pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. So, Again, certainly wise to pray continually. The Bible tells us that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that we should pray without ceasing, right? The, the way I've always envisioned that, and nowadays that we have cell phones, you know, is, is almost like in the morning you, you call God and then you never hang up the line. You, you call the Lord first thing in the morning and then you just stay on the hook all day long and you just talk to God incessantly throughout the day whether it's in a lengthy conversation or Lord help me to handle this one situation, just quick statements, but you just stay in constant communication with God all throughout the day long. And this is what David's describing. And you know, when we're going through hard times, that's all the more important, all the more essential when you're going through a hard time that you really be intentional to prayerfully talk things through with God because the thoughts come and the feelings come. And look, so then every time the thought comes, you got to counteract it with talking to God about it. Lord, you know, I used to work as a police chaplain for a number of years. And, you know, in a sense, when somebody's in a bad spot, we use this for like talking them off the edge, you know, and it's kind of like, Lord, you need to talk, talk me down, Lord. <laughs> talk me down, Lord, because I'm getting off the edge. I'm about ready to go over the edge, Lord. And, and as you just, just keep talking it through with the Lord. And he's wonderful to help in that way. He says, Lord, I'm going to pray and cry aloud. I'm going to process my pain through prayer. I'm going to process my emotions and my mental struggles through prayer. You're going to hear my voice, and I'm going to cry aloud all day long. He says, verse 18, he, God, has redeemed my soul in peace from the battle that was against me. So was David in the midst of a battle? Yes. But he says, in the midst of the battle, God gave me peace in my soul. Notice, peace is not the absence of conflict. Because David says, I was in a battle. But God gave me peace in the midst of the conflict because of his presence and the assurance that he would help and take care of me. For there were many, he says, against me. But God will hear, he says, verse 19, and afflict them, even he who abides of old. Because they do not change, he says, verse 19, therefore they do not fear God. So interesting little indication David makes there, because they do not change, that is from their wrongdoing, they won't change, they refuse to change directions. David says, that's how I know they have no fear of God in their life. And to me, this is an interesting spiritual principle here. David points out as he's just expressing these things is an indication that someone has no fear of God is that they will not change from a wrong path that they're on. David says there, because they do not change, therefore, the idea is that reveals they don't fear God. Because see, if someone fears God, they're going to turn from their wrong ways because they fear the consequence of doing wrong in the sight of the Lord. So when someone is on a wrong path or they do something hurtful or they're behaving in an evil in a wrong way and they refuse to change course, the Bible says there's an indication they have no fear of God in their life because they're stubbornly persisting in a wrong path and they won't change. And it's an indication. The reason is 
they don't fear God, which is not a good place to be. He says, verse 20, he who has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him, he has broken his covenant. The idea there, broken one's promise or commitment. And that's what David's describing, again, maybe because of this relational rift that had happened, that that there was a broken commitment, a broken promise. And sometimes that happens in relationships. You know, someone doesn't keep their promise or their commitment. They break it. And it causes great pain in a relationship. The words of his mouth, David says, verse 21, were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. Notice the danger of those who can say one thing, but yet the underlying agenda in their heart is completely different. And David discerned that. In fact, he even describes it here, how that was going on. He says very clearly here, the words of his mouth, smoother than butter. The idea is, boy, he's a smooth talker. He's a smooth talker. He knows how to say the right things and drop the right lines and you know, communicate the right things to give the impression of this or that. He says, he, he's a smooth talker, and his words are softer than oil. That is, he knows how to grease the gears verbally. But he says the underlying agenda of his heart is he has war in his heart and his words are really nothing but drawn swords. He's just looking to use those smooth words to take advantage. So again, be careful. You know, d- d- don't, don't, just, don't just hear someone's words, listen to what they really may be saying. Because you know, it's, it's easy to say all the right things. And even spiritually, sometimes we can do that, right? The Bible cautions us again. Jeevanese said, you know, these people, remember he said, these people honor me with their lips but their hearts are far from me. And we can be just as guilty of that. We, we can say all the right things spiritually. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times over the years that I've you know, ended up sitting down with individuals or having counseling sessions with people who, you know, it comes out there's some you know, really grievous struggle with sin or some impropriety going on in their life that, you know, in, in their personal or private life. And yet all the while, They're praising the Lord, singing the songs, praying at the prayer meetings, quoting the Bible verses, sharing the gospel. I mean, they're they're saying all the right things spiritually. But in their heart, they're living like they're in war against God. And that's never good. And David says here, this is what it was like with Ahithophel and Absalom. They were saying the right things. But just because somebody's saying the right things doesn't mean their heart, he says, in a right place. Look what David gives great, great counsel, verse 22. This should be starred or underlined in your Bible or start in your neighbor's Bible if you want. Verse 22, cast your burden. David's got a great burden going on in his life. Cast or give your burden to the Lord and he shall sustain you. He shall never permit the righteous to be moved. So David says, do you have a burden on your heart? Some heavy thing, a burden, some heavy thing, right, that just weighs you down. It wearies you. It exhausts you. It's hard to carry mentally, emotionally. You know, in this room this evening, I am certain there are those who have burdens, and you are carrying a burden, and it is heavy and weighty, and it may be something that happened in your life in the past that's still just a heavy weight that weighs you down and at times trips you up or wears you out mentally or emotionally. Or maybe it's something that you're dealing with right now. And look, the Bible says God doesn't want you to be weighed down by that. God's a good father. You know, I mean, I grew up, I mean, I grew up, but I, I raised a family of a wife and three daughters. And, and I had one fundamental job every time we went to the beach. Carry everything. That was just my job. I was just, I was the ox. That's what I was. It was the family ox. That's, that's what you do. It's what a dad does, right? By the time you get to the beach, you just want to die, you know? But that's what you do. Your father carries, a, you carry the burdens, right? It's, it's the way God made us. Giving us broad shoulders. That's what we're supposed to do. Well, look, God's a father. He's a father. He's a husband. He loves us like that. So he says, give me your burden. Give me your burden. I don't, you, yes, it's a burden. God doesn't diminish it's a burden. David, I know that's a burden, but I don't want that to crush you. Give it to me. Let me carry that burden for you, he says. Cast your burden on the Lord. Give that burden to God, he says. 
And David says, and he'll sustain you. He'll sustain you. He'll uphold you. Oh, I don't know how I'm going to make it. I don't know how I'm going to make it. He says, God will sustain you. He'll keep you above water. God can sustain you. He'll never permit the righteous to be moved. God promises to uphold his own, to take care of us. David said in Psalm 37, I once was young, now I'm old. And he says, this one thing I know, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or God's descendants begging bread. The Lord always takes care of us. He sustains us. He keeps us stable. He doesn't let us be moved off course. He upholds us. So David gives us wonderful advice there. Peter picks up on this idea in the New Testament where he says to cast all your anxiety upon the Lord because he cares for you. Again, what do we do with anxiety, depression, thoughts, feelings, emotions? We give it to the Lord. We, we give those things to the Lord. Lord, I'm dealing with this. Help me. You take this burden because this burden is going to wear. I can't handle it mentally, but Lord, you can handle it. And we just, we give it to the Lord that he can sustain us and keep us from being moved off course. He says, verse 23, but you, O God, shall bring them down to the pit of destruction. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men shall not live out half their days, but I will trust in you. Interesting David's insight in verse 23 as he talks about people who are bloodthirsty and deceitful, he says, they shall not live out half their days. Boy, that's insightful. Woe to him who strives against his maker, the Bible says. People may be bloodthirsty, may they be doing things in deceitful ways, but God says that never works. That's a built-in self-destruction course. He says they won't even live out half their days, but David says, Lord, I'm just going to trust in you and keep doing that, which is right. Let's look quickly at Psalm 56, just a short psalm. This psalm tells us it's a psalm of David, a miktam, which means a, a golden psalm. So again, I don't know if this means it was one of David's better psalms or what, but a miktam refers to a, a golden psalm of David when the Philistines had captured him in Gath. So 1 Samuel 21 is the backdrop to what's being referred there. And David here cries out at another time when he was in distress. He says, be merciful to me, O God, for man would swallow me up. Again, people can devour people at times. This time, David's enemies were outside of his friends and associates. It was actual enemies of his. But he says, Lord, they're about to swallow me up. Fighting all day, he oppresses me. My enemies would hound me all day. For there are many who fight against me, O Most High. You know, David at times felt like everyone was constantly opposed to him. As he sought to serve the Lord and fulfill the purposes of God, he said, Lord, I just feel like there's so many that are in opposition to me. And I think as Christians, more and more, that is more of what our reality is becoming. That there are many enemies, many who oppose those of us who want to follow Jesus and believe the word of God, our enemies, many who continue to fight against us. And David says, verse 3, whenever I am afraid. Now, wait a minute. David was a warrior, wasn't he not? David was one of the greatest warriors in Israel. I mean, this guy was like the ancient Rambo of the Old Testament. David was no weak, effeminate, cowardly man. I mean, this guy was taking down giants with a slingshot. This is somebody who was going out into battles in the days of ancient Israel. And we're not talking about somebody who stood 100 yards away and fired guns behind a wall. We're talking about days when they would come together and clash in hand-to-hand combat with swords and spears and clubs. I mean, you had to have a degree of courage to enter into that kind of warfare. So David is this very strong, powerful man, and yet David is honest enough to say, I'm afraid sometimes. Sometimes I'm, I'm genuinely afraid of things. Things make me afraid and make me scared. And David says, whenever I am afraid, I appreciate that. That's just honesty. Again, courage isn't the absence of fear. It's continuing to do what's right in the presence of fear. That though you are afraid, you don't let fear control you. You, despite the fear, know that there is something that is right to be done. And so therefore, I will still walk forward, though I am afraid, because there's a right thing to do. And so David says, whenever I am afraid, as he was at times, as we are as well, he says, I will trust in you. Lord, when I get afraid, I'm going to trust you 
to help me to work through that fear, and I'm going to trust you. The idea is, God, I'm going to depend upon you because I don't think I can handle this, and I don't think anyone else can help me, but, Lord, there's nothing too hard for you. You're God. So, Lord, I'm going to trust you when I'm afraid. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to see you have a chance to show me that you're God to show me your power, to show me your care for me. He says, I will trust in you. In God, he says, verse four, I will praise his word. Why? Because it's the word of God that assures us about the character of God. It's the word of God that assures us about the ways of God and how God works. And so David says, I'm going to praise the Lord for his word because his word gives me credible evidence that this is why I can trust God because I can read it right in his word. So he says, in God, I have put my trust I will not fear what can flesh or a person, the idea is, do to me. The idea is if God's taking care of me. If God's with me, then he says, really, what can flesh do to me unless God allows them to do something to me? And then it's God's permissive will to let that happen. All day, he says, verse 5, they twist my words. And I'm sure that's never happened to anyone in this room, right? Never had anybody twist your words You say something and then somehow the story gets twisted or your words get twisted. Get married. That'll happen once in a while. Your words will get twisted. Happened to us once in 1997. One time I think that happened. I won't say who did it. All day, he says, they twist my words. That's not what I said, but they twist my words. All their thoughts, David says, are against me for evil. They gather together, they hide, they mark my steps. The idea is they were just looking for ways to accuse David. They were just looking for ways to twist his words and and paint him out to be a bad guy, his enemies. They hide, they mark my steps. That is, they're looking for me to just fall on my face when they lie and wait for my life. Shall they escape by doing iniquity? In anger, cast down the peoples, O God. He says, God, if this angers me, you're righteous. I know this must anger you, God. So so deal with this, Lord. Deal with this wrongdoing. Verse 80 says, you number my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. And then David goes back to that same refrain again. In God, I will praise his word. In the Lord, I will praise his word. In God, I've put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? So David here in verse eight makes some beautiful statements. You number my wanderings. The idea is God, you keep accurate record of everywhere I go. The idea is David saying, God, you're aware of everywhere I go. If I wander over here, if I wander over there, if I go to this location geographically, whether I'm in Engedi, whether I'm in this location, whether I'm in the cave of Adullam, Lord, wherever I'm at, wherever my wanderings lead me, Lord, you're aware and you keep track of it. God constantly has you know, GPS awareness of exactly where we're at. He documents and keeps track of it. Interesting, he refers to in verse 8 there how these things are, are dealings, are wanderings, even our tears. He says, God, are they not all in your book? That is, is, none of that is insignificant to God. Nothing that happens in your life, whether you go here or you do this or you go through that experience or even the times when you shed tears, he says, God, you keep accurate record of all that. Yeah, is God never overlooks anything in our lives. You know, it's interesting that he says here regarding the Lord, so tender that he says, Lord, you put my tears in your bottle. The idea is there's not one tear that's shed in grief or heartache, maybe something that you've gone through, a loss in your life or a painful experience, the things that we go through where we shed tears. He says there's never a time where God just kind of overlooks and brushes it off. He says, Lord, every single tear I cried, he says, you preserved every tear. Every one is kept in your bottle. You know, what, what a wonderful thing. And sometimes, you know, some of the times of our most precious grieving or tears are those times when, when we're just alone with the Lord. And we're, we just process something. And, and maybe it's not in front of anyone else, but it's just between us and the Lord. You know, I have a, a, a location where from time to time I just... It's, it's, it's my spot where I put on worship music, and, and, and if I need to fill up God's bottle a little bit, 
I just add a few more tears to the bottle. And it's, it's my place with the Lord, with nobody else. No one else is keeping record. Nobody else has to keep record of how many tears, but, but God has a perfect record. He knows exactly how many times I've needed to cry. He knows exactly how many times it was just necessary to process something. And he keeps track of it all. And he says, Lord, you're aware of all that. I mean, think about it. The God of creation, the God who's controlling everything, is keeping track of every single precious tear that you've shed in your life. Everything that you've gone through, everything you've experienced, he says, Lord, you have it all documented. My whole life. You write it down in your book. The idea is it matters to God because you matter to God. Everything you go through, it's, it's important to him. He doesn't overlook anything. He's fully aware and intimately involved. Even when no one else is, God himself is. And David says, this I know, verse 9, because God is for me. And this was David's great assurance that God was for him. That's why he says in verse 12 and 13, Lord, vows made to you are binding upon me. If I've made a commitment to you, God, I want to keep my commitment to you because you keep your commitments to me. And so therefore I will render praises to you for you have delivered my soul from death. Boy, so many times God has entered into our lives and brought a great deliverance. Things that would have destroyed us and ruined us. Certainly he's delivered our soul from death and the salvation that we've experienced through our Lord Jesus Christ. That though the wages of sin is death, he's delivered us, forgiven us our sins and delivered us from the consequence of death and eternal death. He says, have you not kept my feet from falling that I may walk before you in the light of the living? How many times, God, you kept me from slipping and falling flat on my face? And boy, there have been the numerous amount of times when we were walking on a slippery slope. And we were on that slippery slope and we were wandering and God was keeping track of us even as we were wandering. And and it's God who intervened with his deliverance and his help and brought his light in that situation to keep our feet from falling and upheld us and sustained us. And what's the whole reason of that? Can I draw your attention back to it in verse 9? David says, why do I know this and how do I know I'll overcome my enemies? This I know, verse 9, because what? God is for me. David says that's a fact. He's not saying that's a hopeful thing. He says God is for me. And look, let me say to you tonight, if your family's not for you, if you've had a friend or a close relationship hurt or wound you and they're not for you, let me tell you this tonight, God is for you. God is on your team. God is supporting you. God is your greatest cheerleader and God will never leave you and never forsake you. No one else in the world may be for you. You may not even be for yourself anymore, but God's still for you. God still believes in the potential of what he is able to do with your life, irregardless of what anyone thinks about you or what you think about yourself. That's why the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Or another way of thinking of that is God for us. Who cares? Because God's for you. Let that assure your heart and encourage you in this week ahead. Let's stand together. Let's pray.